I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. Middle market businesses are where the real action takes place. Around 200,000 businesses in the United States fall into the middle market size range, generally defined as generating revenue between $25 million and a billion dollars. These businesses collectively employ 50 million people, or almost a third of the U.S. workforce, and represent two-thirds of total U.S. private equity deal value. Big deals may grab the big headlines, but a lot of action in the economy and private equity industry takes place in the universe of middle market businesses. Season one of Private Equity Deals shared deals from eight well-known GPs. In season two, we discussed eight well-known companies bought by private equity firms. We can't begin to cover the massive middle market in just eight deals, but in season three, you'll get a tiny sliver of what the middle market is all about. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of capital allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On the fifth episode of season three of Private Equity Deals, Ignacio Gianti from Corsair Partners discusses TreviPay. Ignacio is the CEO of Corsair, a $10 billion specialist in financial services and infrastructure investing that started as a private equity practice within JP Morgan three decades ago. TreviPay is a global payments and invoicing network that enables businesses to transact in a reliable way with other businesses. Our conversation covers Corsair's target companies, sourcing of TreviPay inside World Fuel Services, diligence process, exclusivity period, valuation, and risk assessment. We then turn to post-close operations, including building and onboarding a team alongside the existing superstar CEO, managing the balance sheet, transitioning from the former parent, and the early performance and challenges of the deal. Please enjoy my conversation with Ignacio Gianti. Ignacio, thanks very much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here, Ted. Thank you. Why don't we start with just a little elevator description of Corsair? We've been around now for 30 years. We started our lives as a private equity fund focused on investing in financial services that was anchored by JP Morgan back in the early 90s. I took over day-to-day running of the firm about 12 years ago, and we evolved into a firm focused on investing in middle market, higher growth businesses that operate in and around the financial services industry, but tend to be business services, technology-enabled type businesses, payments, other types of software that's very relevant for the financial industry. And we work typically with middle market founders and strong CEOs and management teams to help their companies grow better, faster, and be relevant to the industries that they operate in. What are the types of companies that you like to buy? Our ideal company is a company that has developed into a segment of the market that has structural tailwinds, where specialization is actually being rewarded, where product market fit has been proven, and some basic go-to-market strategy has been implemented. The entrepreneur or founder will typically be sufficiently aware of their growth potential to know that they could benefit from an institutional partner. So their choice at that point is to sell control but retain a large minority interest, 
to a financial sponsor that can actually help them accelerate their growth and reach their full potential, or to sell to a strategic typically. And obviously you get both types. We obviously tend to focus on and thrive with those entrepreneurs who are looking for that institutional partnership. So we're going to dive into TreviPay. What is this company? TreviPay is a B2B or a business-to-business payments company. What they offer is a full suite of services that enable businesses to transact and make payments in an error-free way with other businesses. It's been a very big theme for the payments industry over the last decade and more because unlike consumer payments, B2B has been a relative backwater despite being a much larger market. And finding good businesses that have built software capabilities that are highly relevant to their customers in this area is still relatively uncommon. And TreviPay happens to be a business that we believe fills many of those criteria. What's the history of the company? The company was founded a long time ago as a technology service provider for business payments. It was acquired by a larger publicly traded company called World Fuel Services. World Fuel was a company that was focused on delivering fuel and associated services to corporate clients around the globe. And the management team at the time thought that if they could acquire a business that would actually enhance the service proposition to their customers around payments, that would be effectively another added benefit to their proposition to their customers. They hired a very strong CEO to help build MSTS within World Fuel. And what MSTS ended up being is a payments business with a much broader degree of relevance to business customers than what World Fuel required in and of itself. And management at World Fuel decided ultimately that MSTS was no longer core to their business and began to explore ways to carve the business out from the publicly traded parent. How did it come on your radar screen? We had identified within our payments vertical, B2B payments as a high priority segment and had been reviewing a whole host of businesses that were everything from early stage, high growth startups to more mature businesses. And the challenge with the more mature B2B payments businesses is many of them really have a balance sheet function. They're providing some form of financing to their customers in order to facilitate an accounts payable situation or an accounts receivable situation. So it was during the course of screening that we met with the CEO of what was then MSTS, Brendan Spear. He's the person who runs Trevi today and became aware of the opportunity to explore the carve out of MSTS from their parent company. World Fuel eventually did end up hiring a banker they went to market to explore sponsor interest in executing the carve-out. Ultimately, Corsair was very well positioned for that because we had very strong support from the management team at MSTS. And given the complexities and the time that it takes to execute a carve-out, having a management team working with an owner they're excited about working with going forward is very critical to the success of that process. And I think the team on this one positioned themselves really well with World Fuel and the management team at MSTS to be the preferred partner. This, of course, happened with the backdrop of the onset of COVID because we started discussions with World Fuel about this in the summer, fall of 2019. And really, discussions accelerated as we got to the beginning of 2020. 
when we were discussing exclusivity and having a relatively long period of time to do not only our diligence on the business itself, but also our diligence on the operational carve-out and how to best accomplish it and structure the deal. And of course, then in March of 2020, COVID hit. So we were, I think, rewarded for our tenacity in working very collaboratively with World Fuel and the management of MSTS to execute this through the spring of 2020 under lockdown, and then eventually closing the deal in the fall of 2020. I'd love to walk through that whole process. So when you first learned that this business, this unit could come on the market, what was your diligence process like getting from there until you had an exclusivity? We did have access to management, so we could actually meet with Brandon and his team. That enabled us to understand the basic building blocks of what they had built in terms of the software and its value proposition to their customers. It also enabled us to identify that there were several non-core pieces to the core B2B payments piece that were embedded within MSTS. We knew that we had sort of a combination of a carve-out and a restructuring, or if you will, simplification of the business to execute. Because we are financial institutions investors, we also understood the balance sheet nature of the business and were able to use our network within the financial services space to explore ways pre-actually getting exclusivity to simplify and effectively render the business capital light, balance sheet light, which was another element to the business that frankly could put off other bidders. And so we identified it as a bit of a special situation because there was some complexity to the situation and to the business that needed to get resolved in the process of the carve-out. And that we saw as an opportunity as opposed to a challenge. What are the typical aspects of your diligence that you would like to know more about that don't happen until after you sign that exclusivity? The first and most important one is people. We have a practice at Corsair that focuses on people talent development, organizational architecture, and it's run by an operating partner who's been with us now for over 11 years. That involves when we're in the process of pre-acquisition, a full diligence on an assessment of the key people in the business. That's not typically something we can get to until we're close to or have exclusivity, because we do ask them to do a number of psychometric tests and interviews that take time. And of course, sellers are typically unwilling to allow us to engage in that until they've got a reasonable line of sight that we're going to get the deal done. Number one is that next layer of evaluation of talent happens in the post-exclusivity period. The second one is really understanding the products themselves. In pre-exclusivity, you get product demos, you might get some conversations with the CTO or the chief product officer but they tend to be pretty high-level conversations. Again, we have a team of people, in particular on the technology side for software businesses, that focuses on understanding the actual core products and the technology at a much more granular level. You won't find that in a confidential information memorandum, and you won't get that off your first two or three conversations with the CTO themselves. You've got to dig in deeper into the organization to understand the product roadmap, and even sometimes some of the code. So that, again, that product diligence happens at a exclusivity phase. The third area 
which is in some ways also equally critical, is their go-to-market strategy and their customer strategy. So how do they actually sell the product? What is the enterprise sales cycle? Who are they engaged with at their customer within the organization of their customer? And then obviously those customer checks. Because again, unlike visiting a store when you're doing sort of a consumer type deal, no one in a business is going to talk to you about how their payments provider integrates into their infrastructure without having a good reason to do that. We can't do the types of channel checks that you might do if you were simply visiting an auto dealer or a store or a factory as an anonymous consumer. In this case, what was the process of getting the exclusivity? There's some degree of price validation. You need to show that you've got a clear understanding of the business model to put a value on it. The value can be a range, and it can be subject, obviously, to confirmatory diligence and work. In this particular case, it was also important to build a critical relationship of trust with the seller that we were serious and committed, because the process of getting to a deal was going to be lengthy as there were a number of issues related to the carve-out that both needed to be diligence, but then also needed to be memorialized in a transitional services agreement and other forms of commitments between the various parties. So for the parent company to engage in that type of conversation, they had to have a very high degree of trust that we were committed. And that's not just a value on a bid letter, it's meeting the leadership of the firm getting confirmation that we're actually engaging the right type of advisors and focusing on the issues that are most salient to executing the transaction. That type of commitment is a multi-layered commitment that you demonstrate over a period of weeks and months. It's very distinct from a traditional competitive auction process. How do you think about the valuation of this business? The valuation of the business in this particular case was actually somewhat complex because we needed to see through several different things happening to the business and then determine what appropriate discount we wanted to place on those factors. As I mentioned, there were a couple of non-core subsidiaries to MSTS that we needed to sell because they were really not germane to the business and World Fuel wasn't willing for us to leave them behind. So you took a view on that. You also needed to take a view on the balance sheet profile of the business because clearly from a valuation perspective, a balance sheet business would command a much lower multiple than a pure technology business. So we had to have a degree of comfort around how we would address the, albeit small, but nonetheless extant balance sheet that MSTS maintained to run their business. We also, as growth investors, needed to take a view as to how the business might grow and what discount to a fair market value multiple we could get, given that we were going to be doing a lot to the business to sort of bring it to a pure play technology, high growth business potential that we thought it had. So all of these factors went into thinking through the valuation. And in this case, that was the more relevant set of considerations versus what's the next person going to pay for this business and how much do I have to pay to win? What we needed to do was demonstrate a fair valuation around a fair way to look at valuation to the parent company, and then a commitment to seeing the execution of the carve-out through to the end. That was sort of a different type of process than some of the more competitive auction processes that obviously we see and participate in like all the other private equity firms. How did you think about the discount that you wanted to pay so that it was an opportunity and balancing that with an attractive enough price to get an exclusivity? 
Yeah, I think that's always the key judgment call when you're in a situation that's a bit more bilateral. Our approach has tended to be reasonably conservative on the underwriting and then very fair on the pricing. So the deal has to stack up based on what we think is a very achievable operating plan. And then we're willing to pay a very fair market multiple against that. And we spend time, especially in these more bilateral situations, really working with our counterparts to frame our underwriting case and then demonstrate that we're paying actually a real market multiple for that. And that's stood us in pretty good stead, especially with founders who are retaining large stakes in the business. In the case of Trevi Pay specifically, it was also highly related to the engagement and commitment we were showing to getting the deal done for World Fuel. What did you see as the biggest issues or risks in the deal? The biggest issues were somewhat similar to what we find in other transactions. And then there were a couple of idiosyncratic ones. The ones that were similar related to our belief in Brandon as a fantastic business leader and a visionary with a clear strategy for the business. The better the person is in that role, the higher key person risk you bear. And scaffolding him with a team, some of which was already in place. He had recruited and had been working with a number of very strong C-suite executives, but there were clearly some gaps in the team. And so we had to determine how quickly we could fill those gaps and how to prioritize those gaps. And of the eight people, I believe, on the C-suite, we've ended up putting in place four of them since our ownership. And it was phased in, obviously, depending on mission criticality. That was sort of one of the key issues that I think is fairly standard across all of our investments. I think the more idiosyncratic issues that related to Trevi Pay specifically were our confidence level around being able to get a securitization transaction done and effectively move their balance sheet off balance sheet, as it were. And then the level of appetite and the speed with which we could execute the sale of the two non-core divisions, which we ultimately ended up selling in a much more efficient way than we had initially underwritten to a strategic in the industry shell. So we had a very good industry buyer for those businesses. What was it that the business had in place that you then had to figure out how to securitize and move off balance sheet? They were effectively providing a form of financing to their customers who were waiting for payments from their own customers. So we're typically dealing with suppliers to a group of buyers, and that engenders an accounts payable that effectively needs financing. And there was a very low credit risk aspect to that financing and a relatively high velocity. So again, fairly typical for many types of finance companies, but you don't want to get caught on the wrong end of those cycles ever. So we explored a very traditional securitization structure given our network of relationships in the industry. We were able to bring a number of banks to the table who were very happy to take that paper and create the program that Trevi has in place today. What were the aspects of the transition service agreement and the carve out that you had to work through? The good news with MSTS, as it was then called, was that in many ways it was operationally and technologically independent of its parent. So we didn't have some of the very complex issues that you sometimes have where whole systems need to be created or accounting systems need to be put in place for a division to actually stand as a true standalone company. That was already in place. There are a few things that we did need from the parent company. Actually, when you think about the timing of our transaction, we put in place vendor financing. So instead of having to rely on the external credit markets during Q2, Q3 of 2020, which were in flux to say the least, 
we were able to secure vendor financing from the seller, which gave us a very comfortable leverage package effectively to move the deal forward. What's the relationship with World Fuel been like since the transaction consummated? I think they were extremely happy. And I think the market reacted well to the way the transaction was structured and set up. And it's been, for them, I think, a really painless separation. There were no unexpected surprises, no things that they needed to revisit because something didn't work the way that we had hoped it would. It's a recent example of a carve-out in the middle market. It's not that common to do carve-outs from public companies in middle market land. When you were able to securitize the balance sheet and then work through the transition services, what did the business you bought look like? Once you actually stripped out the balance sheet aspect and sold the non-core divisions, you had really a technology and software-oriented business for payments. And the key thing with B2B payments is really the biggest benefit to their customers is that they're driving more business volume. And how do they do that? They're driving it because they're creating a, essentially a close to error-free environment for a transaction to take place between two businesses. So when you take a step back and think about the core of what goes on when one business transacts with another, there's a transaction that gives rise to an invoice, there are different payment terms agreed. And if there are traditional suppliers to a business, there are often bespoke contracts in place for how those transactions are structured, what the payment modality will be. Is it a check? Is it an ACH, bank wire, et cetera? It's almost never a corporate credit card, obviously. But also the duration of payments, the staggering of payments, all of these things are very bespoke. That gives rise in what I would call the traditional industry to a very high error rate with the invoicing. So if you're buying something from a supplier and you're experiencing a 30% invoice error rate, which is not unusual in the industry, it creates an enormous amount of friction. If you suddenly replace that with a software and invoicing system that creates almost no errors ever, you're more likely to want to channel more volume through that channel. So one of the biggest benefits that Trevi is effectively conveying as part of its service proposition to its customers is we're actually going to increase your revenues and your business flow because the people that you're selling stuff to will want to do more through you than through others because of the very low error rate and the very frictionless way in which they can transact with you. So alongside of that messaging, you mentioned somewhere along the way, you changed the brand of MSTS to Trevi Pay. What was the story behind that? MSTS really didn't mean anything to its customers as a name. It's an acronym. So we wanted to create a name that would effectively convey what the company does. So hence the word pay in the name, which immediately sets it up as a payments vehicle of some sort. Trevi came from sort of three different places. The real concept is this engagement between Trevi, the suppliers, and their customers that they're doing business with. That triangle of relationships really speaks to the name Trevi, which in Italian is three-way. The Trevi Fountain is at the meeting of three of Rome's major roads. And of course, was a nod to Kansas City and its history with fountains, because I think there are over 200 fountains in Kansas. And it's known actually in middle America as the city of fountains. So there was three different plays there with the name, which ended up being the winning concept for the rebranding. And I think it's worked well for the company. You mentioned at the onset that World Fuel Services had brought in Brandon, the superstar CEO. What does a superstar CEO mean? 
a superstar CEO has to have many different attributes. I would start with a clear ability to define a strategy and lay out a vision for the business. The second is the ability to motivate and bring together a strong leadership team. All business is a team sport, and the best leaders are leaders of teams. Managing teams is about bringing talent together, but also knowing how talent fits. You don't just assemble the all-star team and expect that team to dominate. You've got to bring together different elements in order to make that team function super well. And that's one of the core attributes. When you're running a high growth business, there are a lot of things you learn along the way. Another essential attribute of strong leadership is humility and a high degree of learning ability and learning skills. The journey of taking a company from, call it 20 million of revenue to 200 million, even though you might be the person to lead that company successfully along that entire journey, it's almost certain that the team around you will change and the things that you need from that team will evolve. The ability to see that and manage that requires learning of your own volition on your own journey as a CEO. And Brandon has that in spades. What are some of those instances where you see someone on the team not being able to elevate with the growth of the business? In some ways, it's actually relatively easy because they either self-identify or it's pretty clear that they're creating a pressure or choke point within the organization that's leading to less than desirable or optimal performance. Our issue generally isn't identifying those people or even getting concurrence with our CEOs that those people do need to be transitioned. Our issue is actually the velocity with which it happens and the degree of thoughtfulness around the integration of new people that goes into that whole process. The onboarding process is one that is easy to get wrong. It's not even a question of onboarding the wrong person. It's just onboarding them in the wrong way. I think that's something we spend a bunch of time on. I think when people have built their businesses from small to medium-sized, they sometimes can get wedded to individuals on their team that have brought the team from zero to 20. And it's hard to recognize that that person might not be fit for purpose to bring it from 20 to 200. And that's where we spend a lot of time with our CEOs. What are some of the right and wrong ways of onboarding someone? I'd say the wrong way to do it is hire someone to do a role without giving them adequate insight into what their team is on the ground when they start or a clear mandate to evolve, grow, or change out that team. It starts with who are the immediate people in your vicinity that you will be relying on to do your job and fulfill your role. But equally, it's about giving them the exposure ahead of the hiring decision to their counterparts in the C-suite and how they interact with those counterparts. And I think spending that time up front, really before you make that hiring decision, enables you to accelerate the onboarding. If you simply hire them in a vacuum and plop them into the role, you're more likely to have growing pains because they just won't have a mental model of how they're supposed to be effective day one. So beyond the team, as Brandon laid out a strategy with you, what are some of the things that he's been able to do that he wasn't inside of the corporate entity? It's about focus and acceleration. Because focus from a parent means being able to make decisions quickly. Decisions around disinvesting were the obvious ones. When we first took over the business, we, within the first 12 months, sold these two non-core divisions. That's something that 
probably would have taken a lot longer at the former parent company. So the speed of decision-making, having a board that is really high value added to his thought process, putting together a board that wasn't just a bunch of investment team professionals from the sponsor owner, but actually real industry people that had built businesses, run businesses, had different specialist expertise around payments and go-to-market that could help him as thought partners make decisions and make them faster. The speed of decision-making, the thoughtfulness and the input that he had access to in terms of human capital with experience shifted dramatically and enabled him to channel investments quickly into those areas of the business where those investments were going to have the highest impact. As you looked to potentially expand the business beyond the vertical that it was serving within World Fuel, how did you think about that knowledge, expertise, and sales team required to do that in, say, an adjacency? That's actually a great question, Ted, and one that's relevant to many of our portfolio companies. And it's a theme within payments generally. So I would say that obviously payments migrated from hardware to software a very long time ago. What's equally become clear is that within software, payments has become very specialized. So there's value to the strategic industry in payments businesses that have developed really differentiated capabilities of serving certain industry verticals. It's an interesting evolution because our thesis at least is that specialists within payment software will still be rewarded. Generalists will be less rewarded. And building an undifferentiated generalist payments company will likely be less valuable than building a highly specialized payments company that owns industry verticals. That goes to the type of software and the functionality that it has for the set of use cases. But you also need that sales team that can really address an industry vertical and say, I'm going to deal with auto parts suppliers, or I'm going to deal with e-commerce or different types of business verticals. So that requires more of a specialist sales organization. And I think you need to have a really strong partnership between the product development, the chief technology or chief product officer side of the house, and the people that are managing the go-to-market. Those groups often work in silos, and the best organizations, they work as partnerships and collaborative teams. That's what we've tried to develop and really encourage. And I think it was part of Brandon's vision to build an organization around a multi-industry set of capabilities that could serve a number of different industry verticals. And that's how we've built up the business. How do you think about the buyer-build decision to do that? One of the benefits as a specialist investor is that we have a pretty good perspective going into an investment as to what the peer landscape looks like of players of a certain size. In some cases, we'll have identified a really strong acquisition because there's a very specific product, customer, geography capability that acquisition brings. One of the things that our CEOs who've worked with us have benefited from is that specialized knowledge and bringing ideas that they may not actually have had on their radar screen. And we've executed on those ideas quite effectively, I think. In the context of buy or build, it really has to fulfill very disciplined criteria around the rationale for buying the business. We will generally err on build unless we think that something is pretty specifically fulfilling a gap that we need to fill as part of our strategy. 
you can waste an enormous amount of time buying stuff, worrying about integration, dealing with disruption that comes with M&A, and it's not often rewarded. History has shown there are plenty of sponsor-owned businesses where I would say they've built scale and created sort of a Frankenstein that didn't really get rewarded for the scale they'd built versus others who've actually achieved maybe not as much absolute growth, but what I'd call higher quality growth. And that tends to get rewarded in the market, whether you're selling to a strategic or a sponsor. So what's happened so far? From a financial standpoint, the investment has been a success. Obviously, we're only two and a half years into it, but we sold the non-core subsidiaries, were able to return a lot of the capital that was originally invested in the deal, pay down all the financing. So we effectively had a debt-free business that was now simplified, growing, and where the management team had one singular focus, which was to build the best B2B payment software integrated business they could build. And that's now garnering a lot of industry strategic attention because it's emerged as a relatively rare, profitable, high growth, pure play business in a segment that doesn't have many of those types of businesses. We've also been thoughtful about getting Brandon out in front of a host of much larger industry players and enable him to continue to acquire knowledge and use his learning ability to lay out a really exciting strategic plan for the next phase of growth in the business. What have been some of the challenges along the way? The ultimate purpose of what this software is designed to do, it's clearly a very sticky product. Once you're in, customers see the value. There's really very little reason to even think about swapping you out. But the process of onboarding and then internal customer adoption is one that is lengthy. So finding creative ways to shorten that has been, I would say, the biggest challenge in the business. And it's a high quality problem to have, to be clear, but I think it's an interesting one to crack because it's one that really relates to a lot of different software business models. In the industry, there's been a little bit of compensating for slower organic growth in the enterprise sales environment by acquisition. That's something we haven't done a lot of. We've done a couple of small deals at Trevi. But as I've looked around at other software models, it's interesting that acquisition's almost been a replacement for low organic growth. And that, in the case of Trevi, is not where we want to be. It's created a healthy debate about the benefits versus the costs of going down an M&A-fueled growth spurt versus a organic and investment-fueled growth spurt. And I think the latter makes us more relevant to strategic industry players. What are some of those creative ways that you've tried to improve that sales cycle? It really relates to something that's a little bit idiosyncratic, which is, can you effectively execute shortcuts around an enterprise sales cycle? Enterprise sales can take place at what I call the counterpart to counterpart level. They can take place below or above that. Sometimes they can take place even at the board or C-suite level within a prospective customer and then work their way down. And I think every organization is a little bit idiosyncratic that way. You know, if you were selling software to JP Morgan, I suspect there'd be no point at all talking to Jamie Dimon, even if he happened to be a a pal of yours. But again, different organizations do have different cultures in the way they onboard vendors. And I think for us, it's really been a process of devising the right way to assess prospective customers and what the best way is to accelerate the sales cycle. Unfortunately, it's a bit of a bespoke process. I'm not describing something to you that could simply be packaged in a box and rolled out across a bunch of our different portfolio companies. 
So when you've done the lifting of carving this out, selling off the non-core businesses, simplifying it, and you're left with a high growth, high margin business, that sure sounds attractive to a large universe of potential financial sponsors down the road. I'm curious how you're thinking about your exit strategy when the time comes. We have historically not sold many companies to financial sponsors. We have tended to sell our businesses to strategic industry buyers, occasionally through the public markets, through IPOs. Of course, in today's world, there are many strategics that are sponsor-owned. So we are certainly seeing a heightened degree of dialogue across many of our portfolio companies with strategics, albeit that they have majority ownership from a sponsor. We're very agnostic. Our perspective is that we will engage with businesses that really understand what we've built. And we try to do that informally through the early phases of our ownership period. And then once we think we've got a business that's mature enough with the right type of interest, the right quality of interest, then we will typically bring it to market. That's how we've tended to do these things in the past. What's been the rationale for not selling much to financial sponsors? When we're on the buy side of something, if there are strategics around it, we'll tend to think that we can't pay as much of the strategics. So you won't spend as much time in that type of process. And my suspicion is that that's what's happened in a number of our situations where strategics have been very actively involved in our processes, and that tends to put off your typical sponsor buyer. What have been the biggest lessons you've learned from this deal? On the positive side, really worth sticking to something complex if you have strong belief in it. This was no easy lift. It was a nine-month deal process. It was a lot of complexity, and there were a lot of pieces to the deal that needed to get set up sequentially in the right way for it to work and get pulled off. We tend to be pretty persistent in our business and sometimes to a fault, but I think that was a positive lesson there where the persistency paid and we knew going into it in that first quarter of 2020 that this was going to be a long haul deal, but the payoff was going to be worth it. On the other side of it, I think that we will continue to evolve and iterate the enterprise sales cycle question because that's one that's relevant to many of our portfolio companies. And Again, a lot of software businesses tend to acquire growth in order to acquire customers. It's a quick way of accelerating that enterprise sales. Many firms have done it very well, but there are also many examples where it hasn't really worked as well. Continuing to iterate on having a good mousetrap and a good way to advise our CEO, founder, partners on how to do that is definitely a goal and a learning from this. Ignacio, I have one last question for you. What is your favorite aspect of private equity? Without a doubt, Ted, it's learning. This is now my 30th year as an investor in private equity. And I can't think of a day that I come into the office where I'm not learning something. I could be learning it from our clients, our LPs, from our portfolio companies, from my partners, from associates working on deal teams. And it's just an incredible opportunity. That is something that really hasn't changed in our industry over the last 30 years. That's great. Ignacio, thanks so much for sharing this story of Trevi Pay and uh, good luck with the continued growth. Thank you, Ted. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 